This podcast was recorded on January 8th, 2021. Cut. And cut. Cut it there. Cut, 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 cut. Ribbit. And cut. Cut. Cut, 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 cut. Cut. Terrific. Cut. And cut. Cut. Let's try it again. Cut. And Cut. 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 Check the gate. Cut. 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 <laughs> Welcome to Cut, just another movie podcast. I'm Manny. I'm Angie. Happy New Year. Woo! It is the new year, but does it feel like New Year's, Angie? No, it feels exactly the same. It's like a carryover it from 2020, and especially right. with the week that we've been having. Uh, it's been a rough one, but hopefully you guys are listening to this podcast and taking a break, a mental break. And if we can be a little bit of a distraction uh, with, uh, like I said, this crazy week, uh, we're happy to oblige. Before we get to the new episode, we want to mention kind of updates to the podcast. We want to get to a thousand subscribers on YouTube, mostly because that's where monetization happens. And it's really tough to put these episodes together. So any kind of compensation that we can get, uh, we would love that. But we need your guys' help. And the same thing on Instagram and Twitter. So our goal is to get a thousand subscribers on YouTube and a thousand followers on on Twitter and Instagram. And so we need your help in that if you haven't subscribed already on YouTube, we're at Cut Movie Pod. Go ahead and do that. Same thing, same thing on Instagram and on, on Twitter at Cut Movie Pod. Where we do updates, we do previews of our next episode. And if you have a friend, if you have a family member or anything like that that is a movie lover or even just like maybe we're covering one of their favorite movies, um, go ahead and let them know because in order for this podcast to grow, we need it's a participation with you guys and like and comment on all our, our podcasts as of yet. The last one that we did was on the Blair Witch Project. So if you're a fan of that film, we do we go a really nice deep dive on on that film to give back to you guys for when we reach a thousand subscribers or followers, what we're going to do is every centennial um, subscriber or follower, we're going to allow them to choose a movie. So if you're subscriber 100 or a friend 200, we're going to allow you guys to choose a movie. Obviously it needs to be a film. It can't be something, you know, nasty or, you know, porn, even though we're not objecting to porn, but we can't obviously review that. Um, but it has to be, you know, a narrative feature film. And I'm going to try and keep an eye out on the Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube to see if I can catch that centennial follower so I can DM them and ask them, you know, what would you like us to cover? We really appreciate all our listeners, the people that have already subscribed. But if you haven't, if you listen to us, we'd really appreciate again, that follow and that subscription. Having said all of that, let's get on with the, this week's episode. Angie, what movie are we doing this week? So for this week, since it is the new year, we decided to go along with the theme of new beginnings, fresh starts. And for that, we picked one of my favorite movies. This is like my baby, this episode. We picked Reality Bites. And if you're watching us on YouTube, you probably figured it out because it's the records right behind me. So for Reality Bites, we kind of wanted to ask the question... Did Reality Bites help define the 90s? So we know there were a lot of movies. There are a lot of movies that you can say define the 90s, have to deal with Generation X, all that jazz. But for this one, we, want, we really wanted that to be the question. Did Reality Bites help define the 90s? I want to toss it over to you, Manny. 
we were both alive in the 90s. I'm a 90s baby. You were growing up in the 90s. What do you remember about the 90s? What I remember about the 90s, and since this movie took place in 1994, that was a big year because there were two big events that I remember. One of them is that we moved. We moved to a new house. And the second is the Northridge earthquake. Fun. I totally forgot and that. And we that was- did that all within the same month, which is in January. But leading up to this podcast, that was like the biggest memories that I could think of in the 90s. Obviously, you have the style and kind of the music and, you know, something that really defines this film. But the difference, I think, with my reality versus reality bites is that I was barely 1994. I was 12 years old. And so I wasn't nearly their age. And so I kind of remember the world a little bit differently and it wasn't filled with coffee and cigarettes and other things that we'll talk about. Well, I was four. So my world yeah, was filled. Yeah, what do filled, you remember? Mine was filled with coffee and cigarettes. No, it wasn't. Um, I don't remember a lot of 1990. Like you said, I remember moving. I remember the earthquake because we were at our new house during the earthquake, right? No, we oh. moved the week later. I don't know why I remember being at the new house. You probably remember because we were painting it and we were fixing it up. Got it. And so we would go like every weekend and would do something to the house. And that's when we would, you know, get in and out and buy pizza. Right. And so we were technically in the house, but we officially didn't move till about a week after the, the North, uh, North Ridge earthquake. Other than that, I, t- I mean, I was four, so I don't remember a lot of anything. I think I was in preschool. So I remember some of that. For me, the memories that I do have are all school oriented because that's all we really did. And so there are those memories. And like I said, we had just moved. So there was a lot of like losing my friends and like the next step, you know, then which was middle school for me. A new beginning. Yes. There you go. See, we, we (laughs) unintentionally tie it all together. And so sort of comparing it to reality bites, like I said, it feels completely different and even just, um, I'll get to this a little bit later with Generation X, but just because you're part of a certain era doesn't mean that your experience is going to be exactly the same and just it depends on where you live, like your family. So then what was your first introduction to Reality Bites? Like when did you hear about it for the first time or watch it? My first memory, I think it might have been you because I didn't see it in the theater. I was too young and wasn't cool enough to even realized that I had come out in 94. So I didn't see it until around my early 20s. But it was, I think, maybe because of you or maybe it was on cable. And I've only seen the movie now three times. Do you full. remember hearing about it at all between no. the 90s and when I showed it to you? Maybe like earliest late 90s, like when I was in high school. But I had the I think my biggest memory is when, when you started watching it. Which, how old were you when you started watching it? I think I was in high school. Because okay. I was going through my big Ethan Hawke phase. So it had to have been in high so school. So is this Gattaca era when you discovered yeah. Gattaca? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I discovered Gattaca before they showed it to us in high school. Because I think by the time they showed it to us, I was like, oh, I love Gattaca. So I had already seen it. But I'm pretty sure that the reason I saw Reality Bites was because Ethan Hawke was in it. And I do this thing whenever I get into an actor, I like to go through his filmography or her filmography and watch like all the movies that they were in. So yeah, that era I saw Reality Bites. I watched the Newton Boys, which I just remembered was a thing recently. And so 
yeah, I was definitely like, I had to have been like 15, maybe 16. And I think I bought it on DVD before I even saw it because it was like five bucks or whatever at Best Buy. So was this before I had told you about Dead Poet Society? You know what? I think I had already seen Dead Poet Society because you saw when you were in high school. So I think I had already seen it, but I didn't remember that Ethan Hawke was in it. Oh. So once I saw it, I was like, wait, Dead Poet Society. And I went back and watched it and I realized that that was him. So I had already seen Dead Poet Society by now. The movie was released February 18th of 1994. It premiered February 11th at Sundance, but the full release was February 18th. It was written by Helen Childress and directed by Ben Stiller. It was Ben Stiller's first feature film that he directed. Which still to this day really surprises me. And I think even back to when I had first heard about Reality Bites, the last person that I thought, I mean, I know he's in the movie, but he would be the last person I thought would have directed it. Yeah, when I saw it the first time, I guess I didn't look or pay attention. So I didn't know that Ben Stiller had directed it. And then when I found that out, I was like, that's really weird. For the cast, we have Winona Ryder as Lena Pierce, who at the time, Winona was like, it basically. Was this her like apex? Like, has she gone full? I'm pretty sure she was already pretty big. Because she started point. really young. Yeah. But I hadn't thought of what she had done right before this. I think she had already done Dracula. Do you think she was bigger than Ethan Hawke right now? Or were they like toe to toe? I think Winona was bigger than Ethan Hawke. I think so too. Yeah. Because she had already done Little Women too. Speaking of Ethan Hawke, he's playing Troy Dyer. We have Jenny Garofalo as Vicky Minor. This was her first movie. And we have Steve Zahn as Sammy Gray. I don't know if this was his first movie. It, it wasn't. It wasn't? Okay. Also another first, Emmanuel Chivo Lubeski was the DP for this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this was his first, which is kind of crazy too when I found that out. Wait, his first feature? Yeah, which was no, it well isn't. here. He did, I think, another American movie. Because when I looked it up. I looked it up too. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. Whatever. If I'm wrong, you guys can yell at me. The budget for the movie was listed at 10 million. That's what I got. I didn't look that up. Okay, cool. 10 million. Not a big film, technically. Not like an indie either, but, you know, kind of in between. And the tagline for the film was, life is always funnier when it happens to someone else, which is true. I definitely remember that. I don't. <laughs> Before we get into the pre-production stuff, more stuff about the movie, I'm going to mention a few things that I found here and there doing my research. And I would like to mention where I got all my stuff so that, you know. We don't get sued. We don't get sued and I'm not accused of stealing. So my sources are from a few articles. We have one from Uproxx called 20 Years Later, An Oral History of Reality Bites by Christopher Tapley. We have one from The Atlantic called Reality Bites Captured Gen X with Perfect Irony by Soraya Roberts. We have one from The Independent titled Reality Bites at 25. Is the Winona Ryder rom-com still relevant to millennials by Clarissa Lowry? And then we have one from The Hollywood Reporter, which was done at the Tribeca 25th anniversary. And that one is by Susie Evans. Going into pre-production and kind of what got the movie made, Michael Schamberg was one of the producers, not the main producer. And the reason he kind of got into producing this film was because he had done The Big Chill. So he wanted The Big Chill for people in their 20s. And that's kind of what drew him to Helen Childress because the first or like a play she wrote because she was going to USC film school 
USC Film School. And she wrote um, a script for a play called Blue Bayou and it won like a prize. And that was how Michael Schamberg got in touch with her and decided that he wanted her to write this big chill for people in their 20s. And she was only 20 at the time. Wow. So this was her first screenplay. She was 20. She was 23 when she completed it. That's one thing that I love about the film is after rewatching it two, three times for the pod, the writing is excellent. Like I really enjoy the writing and I think a lot of these actors, their deliveries are spot on to whatever her words were. And so that's one of the things I think that maybe gets overlooked with this film is just that the writing is really amazing. And for someone who was that young and it being their first film, it's, that's a big deal. Yeah. And what the story was at first was um, Helen was kind of just writing about her and her friends and like their experiences going through college, after college, kind of all the stuff that they had to go through, which is evident in the movie. But I think it was when like Ben Stiller kind of came into the picture that he really wanted a romance story, which I was like, "Mm," but you know, it, it works in the end. But originally it was just kind of supposed to be her and her friends. And a lot of the story in Reality Bites is true. It's all that like stuff that happened. It's all inspired by real people, real, real words even that people said, like some of the phrases or stuff that her friends would say. So it started in that way. The original script was actually called the Untitled Baby Busters Project because Baby Busters was kind of after Baby Boomers. That's oh, kind of how that they a got sub generation. Right. So it was before Generation X had been coined. And so people were just calling them Baby Busters because there were like so few of them, right. I guess. So it was originally titled the Untitled Baby Busters Project. And another title they actually had was The Real World. And this was before. I was just going to say, is that a connection to MTV's real world? It wasn't, but I think, not sure if before the movie premiered, I think it was before the movie premiered, MTV's The Real World, the first season premiered. And they were like, okay, well, we can't name it that anymore. Um, But I just thought it was kind of funny that they had to do that. Like I said earlier, the characters, some of the characters were real. Like there was a Troy Dyer. There was a Sammy. Actually, the real Troy Dyer ended up suing for use of his name after the movie. I was just about to ask, they actually use the real names? Mm-hmm. Well, at least for Troy Dyer, for sure. I don't know about Sammy, but for Troy Dyer, they did. And he, like I said, he ended up suing over the use of his name and the case ended up being settled. God, that must have sucked. Like when people found out and like he was just getting rat. Well, yeah. it's pre-internet. And it actually turns out that the real Troy Dyer was more like the Michael character than he was the Troy Dyer character, which is weird. Yeah, that is super weird. The original script also had, like I said earlier, it was just a lot of characters with a lot of different stories. So it was kind of a little all over the place. And I think that's really what led Ben Stiller and Michael Schamberg to say, hey, can we just focus on like just Selena and then just her romance with this love triangle type thing? And then we'll have like Sammy and Vicky. But I think before it was just too many characters to be able to flesh them out in one story. Going back to the name. So we talked about how it was the Untitled Baby Busters Project. And then it was going to be the real world. How they landed on Reality Bites was because there was an election going on in 1992 when Helen was writing. Bill Clinton. And so all she kept hearing was people saying sound bites, sound bites, sound bites. And so I just found this out in doing research. It doesn't mean Reality Bites as in Reality Sucks. Which most people thought that that was a. And it makes name. sense either way. But really her intention was it to be little bits of reality, like little clips of reality. So bites. 
of reality. Yeah, I didn't find that out until maybe the, I think one of the interviews that you mentioned or one of the articles that you mentioned, um, it was a few years ago, I think, that that she like revealed that and people's minds were like blown. Yeah, I, I hadn't even really thought about it. I just kind of assumed it was... Reality sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Which it kind of does. I like to research alternate casting because that's always kind of fun to imagine. When I was looking up, you know, Winona Ryder being cast as Elena Pierce... Helen Childress kind of always wanted Winona Ryder. So there was no alternate casting, which leads me to think like, what if Winona said no? Like, what were they going to do? It would have really fucked it up. Yeah. And would have fucked it up more so because a lot of the other cast members were got the part because of Winona Ryder. Okay. So like Ethan Hawke got it because Winona was like, hey, Ben, I, I really think you should check out this Ethan Hawke guy because she had seen something he had been in previous. And then Steve Zahn got the role of Sammy because of Ethan Hawke. Because they had done a play together and Ethan Hawke kind of took Ben and, and Michael and Helen to the play that Steve Zahn was doing. And we're like, hey, you should check him out for this. And then Janine Garofalo as Vicky, she had worked with Ben Stiller on the Ben Stiller show before. And Winona was kind of like, hey, you should really get her to read for the part of Vicky. But I do have some alternate casting for a few of the roles. So like for Vicky, we had... Parker Posey, which would have been pretty good. Oh, she was the indie darling. Yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow and Anne Heche. We're kind of up for Vicky, which okay. out of the three, I think I would probably pick Parker Posey. And then for Sammy, it was uh, in the end, it was between him and Noah Weil. For really? Sammy. Yeah. Which is like, that's weird. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Angie and I never grew up watching cable. So we would always see it at either friends houses or one of our aunts had it. And so watching MTV in any of that, um, it was really hard to come by. But I do vaguely remember the Ben Stiller show. And if you guys don't remember what it was, it was about 13 episodes and it was a sketch show. But what's crazy about it and the connection with Reality Bites is how much talent came out of that show. Because like you said, Janine Garofalo was on the Ben Stiller show. It was co-created by Judd Apatow. So Judd Apatow, we all know him now. But back then, no one knew who he was. Andy Dick, who's also in Reality Bites, is in it. And Bob Odenkirk. So, you know, Better Call Saul, uh, Mr. Show, a bunch of other genius comical things that he's done. That core group came out of, of the Ben Stiller show. And going back to Ben Stiller directing, we have to talk about maybe our favorite directed Ben Stiller oh, movie. Oh, God. Which will probably be a, a podcast one day, but uh, my favorite Ben Stiller directed movie, The Cable Guy. A great movie. I really hope that we do an episode on that because that's going to be a good time. Yeah. When we were talking about Janine Garofalo and Ben Stiller kind of having this relationship already because of the Ben Stiller show, Janine Garofalo actually got fired from Reality Bites. Really? And then rehired at the behest of Winona Ryder. Why does she, does it say why she get fired? It does. It seemed kind of like Janine wasn't used to kind of shooting a movie, you know, the way you're shooting a movie because she was used to just shooting the Ben Stiller show. And Ben, it seemed that his directing style was very meticulous and he was kind of a perfectionist. And so he would have them, you know, do takes, redo takes. And he would be like, no, Janine, I want you to kind of like do this. And she kind of said herself that she had a problem with authority. So she would be like, no, I'm not going to do that. She and would because, say that though. And because they were friends, I think she probably thought it was okay when, you know, it should have been like, this is my director. Also, and so because of that, I think one day they were shooting something and she kept questioning Ben or saying no. And he was like, you know what? Just go home. And she was like, oh, cool. I get an early day off. Like, I get to leave early. And I guess when she got home, her agent was like, dude, what did you do? Like, you did, like they don't want you there anymore. And I guess 
because of Winona, they kind of brought her back. So she thought like Ben was joking or something. I think she just thought that Ben had dismissed her early for like, but not fired, but not fired. So even in some of the interviews I read, she was like, I don't know if I was fired or not. But at Tribeca, she's like, yeah, I also got fired, but they brought me back. And another thing, which Ben still actually says that Janine was ultimately right, was that she cut her own Betty bangs. So like Vicky's like iconic haircut with the bangs, that was Janine Garofalo pretty much doing whatever she wanted. And I had seen an interview, I think it was on Late Night with Conan O'Brien, where she talked about how she hated the haircut and she really had no option. Like right. they wanted her to create that haircut, but like the whole time she just hated it. Yeah. And I guess when she did the bangs, Ben was like, this is completely wrong. But in retrospect, when Ben Stiller talks about it, he's like, you know what? She was right. Like it totally makes the character. When looking for a, a cinematographer for the movie, a DP, Ben Stiller really wanted a new cinematographer to bring like a fresh take to the movie. Enter Emmanuel Chivo Lubeski, who, like I said, this was one of his first movies. He was quoted as saying, actually, this might be because of a language barrier thing. But he was he said that when he read the script, he didn't think it was that funny. He like didn't understand a lot of the humor. He didn't get a lot of the humor. And so he was like, this movie really isn't that funny. So he kind of thought it was a drama. Mm -hmm. But once like they were shooting the movie and he kind of saw the scenes with the comedy that he was like, oh, this makes sense now. I get it. Well, it's also like. Most of it is pop culture, American references. A lot. So of I can it. imagine someone coming from Mexico City and it being their first American film that it probably doesn't seem that amusing. In shooting the movie, you can kind of see that a lot of it has this like glow. And even Ben Stiller makes a joke that the whole movie looks like it was shot at sunset, which I really like about Magic the movie. Hour. Yeah, it all kind of looks like it was shot at that time, which it wasn't, but... I like that it kind of looks that way. It gives it kind of like an old withered look, I think. I think Chivo probably used like diffusion on the lenses just to give it that soft look. Yeah. And he also mentions, you know, since this was one of his first feature films in the US, he talks about how weirded out he was about like how they would treat the actors when they came in. So like if Winona came in, they'd be like, whoa, 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 Winona's coming in, Winona's coming in. Like everyone like get to your spots, like everyone have water ready, like all this shit. And he thought that it was super weird because in Mexico, everyone would kind of do their part in the film. So even if you were the main actor, you would, you know, be helping with the dollies, with the lights, with the water and everything. And so that kind of really weirded him out that the actors were kind of like put on this weird pedestal, which he says, like, isn't the actor's fault. It's not like they were being divas or anything. He says it's just more like the system that kind of does it that way, mm -hmm. which I thought was really interesting to hear from his perspective. Now let's start with the movie. So we start with Lena. I'm going to get it wrong because i think of leilani anytime i see it written down but it's lelena you could say winona winona yeah <laughs> i'm probably gonna say that too but we start with uh lelena and she's doing her valedict uh, valedictorian speech at her uh, college and this is what she said and they wonder why those of us in our 20s refuse to work an 80 hour week just so we can afford to buy their bmws why we aren't interested in the counterculture that they invented as if we did not see them disembowel the revolution for a pair of running shoes. But the question remains, what are we going to do now? How can we repair all the damage we inherited? Fellow graduates, the answer is simple. The answer is, the answer is, I don't know. So this sounds all very familiar, um, being a millennial. And 
for as much shit as like every generation gets, I feel like just the torches gets gets passed on because I remember hearing that from Generation Xers about millennials. In researching a lot of the movie, I kept seeing that come up again. Like, is this Generation X's movie? Like, is this the perfect description of Generation X? And I don't, I know we'll probably touch on it a little bit later too, but I don't want to kind of lump this movie specifically for Generation X because a lot of the stuff that's an issue in the movie is still an issue for us now. And it probably will be for the generation after us, except hopefully we're not like, you guys are lazy, you know, like hopefully we don't do that. I feel like us talking about generation Z there. It's not like that at all. I feel like there's no kind of generation Z's like lazy and privileged or anything like that. I, I think millennials and generation Z are more compatible and more like see what the other generations have done. Right. And even when she says, how can we repair all the damage we inherited? That's just like a child thing. It's just like being someone's kid. <laughs> like that's someone that yeah, you ask yourself as someone's kid, you know, a lot of the parents uh, from these characters uh, aren't very positive role models and aren't very inspiring as we'll get to later. Going back to the graduation stuff, the beginning of it is actually all stock footage. Mm-hmm. And they just shot like close ups of like Steve Zahn and Ginny Garofalo like waving. And then when I was listening to the commentary, there's someone with tape on their cap that says, We'll work for food, which again is something that they had at my college graduation, you know, stuff like that. And the commentary is Helen Childress and Ben Stiller. And Ben Stiller was looking at it and he's like, Why did we include that like in the movie? And Helen Childress was like, Because that's what they do during graduation. And he was like, Oh, really? I never graduated college. Haha. <laughs> And so I was just like, okay, <laughs> like when I was listening to that. They're on top of uh, a building in Houston, right? Because yeah, the, that's the, Houston. the whole place, the whole location is supposed to take place in Houston, even though it was filmed in LA. Right. A lot of those shots, like I'll, I'll talk to them as they, I'll talk about them as they come up. But that shot on the roof is in Houston. As we do this movie, one thing that I want to do is pick your favorite Troy line. So his very first line um, on the rooftop is, we all know you slept your way to the podium. Is that your favorite? No. Okay. <laughs> I'm just going to drop them in during there's the movie. There's so yeah, many. Yeah, there's so many. I got some good ones. Shit. I don't just even, keep, keep track at home too. I don't Let even us know, know what your favorite uh, Troy line is. Yeah, he's got a so lot of good So as they're doing the video montage when they're talking about your plans after college, uh, I didn't know this. So I'm going to say I was this year's old when I found out about this. To me, it was always known as the Hey Song. And I was thinking back in high school, Angie and I were in band, we would play it for football games and it was just called the Hey Song. But the actual name of the song is called Rock and Roll and it's by Gary Glitter. His real name is Paul Francis Gad. And this information is gonna want you, make you want to gag because this dude is fucking horrible. Oh no. He was convicted of two child sex offenses oh, God. and was accused of several more. And I believe right now he's serving like a 20 year sentence. Sorry to ruin that song for a lot of people. I know it definitely ruined it for me. Like I said, I didn't know again that it was part, it was the instrument, the instrumental part of rock and roll. Because if you've heard the song, there's this whole him singing and the, the hey part is like the background. It's just the, the guitar and then like the background vocals, but there's this whole other song within that. Maybe that's why, maybe he doesn't get any residuals if they don't use his vocals. 
Maybe. Like but if I, they just use yeah, the that's backing true. track, maybe. But I feel like all of that happened after the fact. So this didn't become a thing, I think, until like the late 80s, early 90s. So he had already been to jail for like the shit that he did. So it's it's weird why like, you know, people look the other way, but. And they still use it for the Joker. That was going to be my other point is that the, they use it in Joker, which Yikes. makes it <laughs> Yikes. even worse. We go from drinking on the top of a building in downtown Houston to having dinner with your parents and your step parents and your best friend. And here in this dinner, we can kind of really see that generational gap that Manny was talking about where one generation talks down to the other for being lazy or what have you. And it's when Lilana's dad gives her the BMW. Yeah, her stepmom's BMW. Once he hands her the keys, Lilana's mom is like, dude, didn't you listen to her speech? She doesn't want a BMW. She specifically said something about BMWs. And her dad kind of just goes off on this tangent about how he doesn't want to listen to an ethical argument about a car and how it runs well. And then he says, little lady, once you've been in the real world for a while, you're going to appreciate that car and everything that it does for you. The classic line of when you get into the real world, blah, 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 blah. Which we've all heard once or twice. And also Troy's line, just think of all those starving children in Africa that don't have cars. That's another good, that's another really good Troy line. (laughs) That's the good one. Yeah. I'd also like to mention in that scene, like in the beginning, there's so much like cutlery noise and like chewing. Yeah, that's a good ASMR scene. Maybe, unless you're not into the chewing and like cutlery on dishes. Does it turn into that SNL sketch where it's like Will Ferrell? And on a gas tire and then like with yes, the plates. Yes, that's exactly like, what it sounds like with other. Sarah Michelle Gellar. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly what it sounds like. Cue the second montage. And this song is When You Come Back to Me by World Party. Okay. The first time I heard of this song, I thought this is a straight ripoff of Young Americans by David Bowie. Did you find out? All I found out was that they sampled the sax from Young Americans. Okay. But that's, and I think it's in the trailer. I think Young Americans is in the trailer. And I'm guessing that they couldn't get the rights for the movie. Basically what happened was they wanted Young Americans and they couldn't get it because it was expensive, I'm sure. And they already had a U2 song. So, but yeah, they wanted Young Americans and that's exactly why they got World Party to write it for the movie. That part, that that song and another song that we'll mention later was written specifically for the movie. We see a very young Renee Zellweger make her non-speaking appearance. Tammy. And this is essentially a second montage to sort of establish the characters of where they're at in 1994. We see Troy's character. He's leaving Tammy Renee Zellweger from what seems like a one night stand. He gets her phone number, immediately regrets it and tosses the phone number to the side. We see Vicky who's in her room, which is an excellently decorated room. I'm pretty sure that's what my room looked like in like 2001 when I was... Yeah, you were like a decade behind. (laughs) I totally was. So I'm sure if I was in my 20s in the 90s, it probably would have looked the same too. So we see Vicky who also seems like she's just had a one night stand because we see the guy leave and then she gets up and writes in her journal and it's like number... What number is that guy? What was his name? His name was Rick with a question mark. Mm -hmm. I think he was like 89. No, 66. Damn it. So yeah, he's number 60. She has pretty much has a list of all the guys she slept with. She has the number. It says his name. And then I think it says where they met, right? Does it? I think it says like bar or something. Oh, okay. I know there's like four columns. But anyway, mm. so we see that with Vicky's room. And then we go into what Lilaine is doing. She like shows up inside. She comes into her apartment and she's getting ready for work. 
she realizes she doesn't have a coffee filter, which I don't think this would work. She grabs toilet paper and like wraps it around her hand and puts it in the top of the coffee maker tacked as a filter, which I don't think no would work. way. There's no like I feel like the water would just like melt. Yeah, and then what I or think dissolve would, the toilet yeah, paper. Dissolve the toilet paper. Yeah. So what can you think of anything you would use as a makeshift coffee filter if you didn't have any? Well, first of all, I don't drink coffee. If you so did, there you go. Uh, I don't know. Uh, N95 mask. That's a good one. That's all I can think of. <laughs> I guess so, huh? If you had them. Yeah, yeah, because they talk about that you can use coffee filters to filter to if it has a pocket in your mask. Fair enough. I was going to say like cheesecloth, but I don't even own <laughs> cheesecloth. So I feel cheesecloth would probably end up just like tissue paper or. No, because you can strain stuff. I don't know. N95 mask. The book that Troy is reading is Review of Existential Psychology and Psychiatry. I don't know okay. the author, but that's the title of the book. And there's more references to him, you know, supposedly majoring in, in philosophy. Psych- yeah, philosophy. Yeah. Good morning. We get to good morning, Grant. How good is John Mahoney at playing an asshole? He's so good. And this was before Frasier. Yep. So I didn't know... I think when I saw the movie the first time, I didn't know about John Mahoney because I was younger. I was like 15. So I didn't really know. But yeah, he's great as being an asshole. Since I had, I saw Say Anything before I saw uh, Rally to Buy. So when I think of, of John Mahoney, I think of him as Iron Sky's asshole dad. And he's also fucking great in that. So I see the correlation because, yeah, like you were saying, Frazier, he's a completely different character. This is where we see what Lelena's job is. And so she seems to be kind of like a, like a PA, right? Like a production assistant type. But she's getting paid. But she's getting yeah, paid. So yeah. she's not like an intern. She's, she actually, it's like an entry level job though. Right. And when I was going over the commentary, Helen Childress actually says, cause Ben Stiller asks her like, is this from any experience? Like, is this autobiographical from any experience you had? And she does mention that she at one point was a letter answerer for the young and the reckless, <laughs> restless, the young and the restless. <laughs> And she was an intern for All My Children in New York. Okay, that makes and sense. And I don't know if she was joking or not, but she mentions that a lot of the letters she got for The Young and the Restless were from prison. I heard about that. That's I weird. I heard because it's like daytime TV. Makes sense. And so what else are you going to watch? And especially in that era, like yeah. daytime TV was littered with just a bunch of soap operas. I was like the must thing to see in the 90s. To Elena's credit, since we're talking about Troy lines... Lelena's line, he's so cheesy, I can't watch him without crackers, is a pretty good one. Wait, who says that? Lelena. When she's when Grant is talking about, I don't know what he's introducing, oh, right, right, right. but yeah. she's standing by the monitor and she's like, he's so cheesy, I can't watch him without crackers. Well, it's the whole beginning of like just the morning talk show and how like over the top he is mm-hmm. being, you know, super cheerful. In our next scene, we see Vicky's job, which she works at The Gap. Is there a gap anymore? Okay, first of all, The Gap in the 90s, I never knew it was a thing during the 90s because where we used to live, I don't think there was a gap. Maybe at the mall, but even that I don't remember. We definitely never shopped at the gap growing up in the 90s. Even when we moved to where there was a gap, I don't think I really shopped at the gap ever. I probably didn't know what the gap was until like, yeah, high school, late 90s. But they did have like pretty cool commercials, right? Was that not the Daft Punk? That was, that was the gap, Punk, right? Yeah. That's they very like pretty Calvin Klein of them. In, Which in the is, 90s. It's weird because when I think of The Gap, now I'm like, The Gap. Ugh. Yeah. You know? So Vicky works at The Gap. She works at the mall. I'm assuming this mall is somewhere in Burbank. I didn't really check to Probably. see. Probably. But 
this was the first motion picture that the Gap allowed themselves to be in. And they had kind of one rule and it was that all the shirts had to be tucked in. So like Vicky's wearing like the denim vest or it's not even a vest, like a shirt and it's tucked in. So that was like their one stipulation that if they were going to use the gap in the movie, they had to tuck the shirts in. Yeah. I mean all that denim. There's too much denim. Was it Canadian tuxedo? Canadian tuxedo. Yeah. And this is the first, or maybe I must, we probably missed some. This is the first of a lot of, product placement in this movie yeah that's one thing that i noticed there's a ton of it there's a ton of subtle you know placements of a lot of stuff the snickers yeah diet coke there's pringles 7-eleven which we'll get to right 7-eleven from here we get to a really one of one of the scenes i really like in the movie is when vicky and elena are in the car and they're singing to tempted by squeeze the only reason i know most of the words of that song is because of reality bites is be- and I only know the first verse because that's all they get past. So and it's cool because we see like Vicky and Lelaine are kind of having this very carefree young people moment listening to Tempted. And then Michael comes like screeching through the back listening to this like gangster rap in his car, which is like the juxtaposition between that is like. Yeah, the track that he's listening to is Murder by KMC. But it shows you sort of the establishment versus, you know. The slackers and yeah, because the they're supposed to be around the same age, right? Like he's probably a little bit older. I I feel like he's probably a little bit older. And oh, that's one thing that I want to go back to when we were talking about casting and all of that. Winona and uh, Ethan Hawke were around twenty three because yeah. they were born in seventy and seventy one. Janine Garofalo was born in sixty four. I didn't realize she was that oh, much wow. bigger of a gap. And Stiller, I think, is from sixty seven. Yeah, I think he's only like four years older than Ethan Hawke. And, and I think Steve uh, Zahn was also like uh, 67-ish. So it was interesting to me that you had people that were actually going through their 20s and the 90s. And then you had a little uh, older cast that had already been through it, but not necessarily in the 90s, more the 80s. And so, but I do think that Ben Stiller is supposed to be a little bit older um, but I, I, to me, that scene is more establishment versus like anti-establishment, which is like yeah. the, the big Generation X right. uh, theme. And I, I was reading somewhere when Ben Stiller was kind of talking about playing Michael. And it mentions the fact that Ben Stiller has not known a life outside of show business because of like of his parents. His parents. Mm-hmm. And so he mentions that when he saw the role of Michael, even though he didn't completely agree with a lot of, you know, the stances that Michael had, that he was kind of more on Michael's side than he would be on like Lelena or Troy's side. That's interesting. And that was kind of like something he felt that he had to find a balance between like kind of how he could coexist and justify the character at the same time as coexisting with like someone like Troy or someone like Lelena. I have questions about Michael and I'll get to like in the scenes where it comes up, but I feel like that makes a lot of sense now. And like my thoughts about that character, about trying to balance both sides. Because I go back and forth with Michael's character, whether whether he's being legit or not. In your face TV. It's like MTV, but with an edge. Yes. Like I said before, Angie and I didn't grow up with cable. So MTV, We I had a neighbor that I would go to. And so I remember that's where I first watched Madonna for the first time. And it was like, <gasps> Madonna, like such a big deal. But I, a lot of the references in In Your Face TV... Like it's totally what MTV was like turning into in the 90s, where in the 80s, it was mostly what it was supposed to be music videos. And then 
in the nineties is when you started seeing, um, MTV do original programming and like the real world, which we'll really talk about a little bit later, but I feel like the look of in your face TV, they, they totally nailed and the background with Ben Stiller having his show done on MTV. A lot of that is, you know, for reals like that. It's what it actually felt like and looked like at the time. And there's a bit in that scene where Michael's on the phone with like his, no, he's not on the phone with his lawyer. He's on his phone with somebody else. And the person on, in reality, the person on the other end of that was Helen Childress, the writer. And so every time Ben Stiller's on the phone, like later when he's on his cell phone with Lelena, he's talking to Helen on the phone too. And is Helen just like reading the script? I don't know if she was reading the script. I don't think so because in, in this scene specifically, they mentioned that Ben Stiller was laughing through a lot of the takes because of whatever Helen was telling him that they couldn't get through a lot of the takes because he was just like busting up laughing. And the Dr. Zayas statue, Ben Stiller actually owned one and had it in his apartment, which is why they put it into that scene. Was uh, Planet of the Apes like one of his favorite? It is. Movies? Yeah. That's what he That's says. Funny. Yeah. $400 a week in 1994 is about $700 a week now, which is what uh, Lelena was making. Which now it's not like terrible. No, not like, at I know all. a lot of people that don't even make that. Yeah. You know, like monthly salary wise. And I mean, obviously you want more. Yeah. <laughs> as minimum, but it's not that terrible. And especially coming out of college, that's like, I would say above average. I would say so. Like an entry level job Slightly. right out of college. Maybe not, like when we'll mention it later, when Vicky gets the manager job, that's what she starts making which I think is low for a manager because now if you're a manager and you were making that, I think that's still pretty low. Yeah. So and I think for Lelena's job, it, it's a good price for an entry level TV job, but for a manager of the gap, I, I don't think that's a good. Yeah. In my twenties, I wasn't making nearly that weekly. Definitely all. not. No. And this was much later. I think I was working full time in my early twenties and I was making $400 every two weeks mm -hmm. if I was lucky. And that was at like, yeah, so close to like job. what they were making a week only in a month. Yeah, 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 pretty much. If someone says go out for coffee, is that really a date? No, I think it's more like a pregame pre pregame date. Like I want to get to know you, and then if I don't if I don't hate you, then I'll invite you on a date. Because I think then Vicky talks about, hey, is it going to be coffee or a cappuccino? Like that's a step up. Yeah, and then she was like, did he ask you? To go out or hang out. Either way, if it's a cappuccino or coffee, that's definitely not a date. And then he says decaf. Like, that's even worse. Vicky starts saying, oh, well, it looks like he's going to be sleeping uh, early because of the decaf. That exterior, by the way, the whole exterior of the apartment is in Houston. That's one of the shots they actually did in Houston. But when they go to the interior, that's like a soundstage in the valley somewhere. Troy moves in because he's lost his job at the newsstand for stealing a Snickers Vicky forgets to tell Lelena and Lelena promptly freaks out. And Vicky's like, dude, look like he just got fired from the newsstand. He's just here until he can get back on his feet and get a place of his own. To which Lelena replies, that's the American dream of the 90s. That, that could, could take, take years. years. Now is a little laughable because that's just never going to happen now for any of yeah, us. Yeah. And that's <laughs> what made me laugh is yeah. in the 90s, it was achievable, especially like we were saying, you're getting paid. $700 a week for the job that she had. Now it's like completely impossible and it's laughable to think that. Another great line is mentioned in this scene is when Vicky says, it's cool, Troy, you can stay. Welcome to the maxi pad. 
And then Sammy's like, yeah, with new dry weave, it actually pulls moisture away from you. <laughs> Which he the first has, few times I did not catch that. Yeah. He has really great one-liners as he's like getting out of the scene. It's so, he's so good in this. Yeah. I love Steve Zahn in this. He's really, I'm kind of sad that they didn't include him a little bit more, but I think the fact that they don't makes his scenes better. Lelena also says he's going to turn this place in a den of slack, which I also really love. Troy is essentially the definition of a slacker. And so her line right there just really um, reinforces that idea because Troy is, you know, doesn't give a shit, is only thinking about himself to a point and just really just wants to kind of what people would say coast to through life. So we have two scenes that follow. We have the one where we're introduced to Troy's passion in life, his crappy band. And then we have the scene where Lelena fails at making microwave brownies because she doesn't use a microwave. When we get introduced to Troy's band, the name is Hey, That's My Bike, which is terrible name, a stupid name for a band. I don't think Sammy's in the band. He just kind of hangs out with them. Well, I always thought that because they play in the same coffee shop and it looks like he works there. Right. That he's sort of like kind of a roadie because then there's another scene where he talks about like guitar strings mm-hmm. and like to take him to the, he says the club. Um, but I always thought it was like he, he just works at that coffee shop where they're playing. Like he's kind of like if Troy needs something, yeah, he's the one to get it. While Troy's being interviewed about his band, he's like, as you can see, I have my occasional run in with an anti hey that's my biker and to those people i say and then he quotes cool hand luke and he says nobody can eat 50 50 eggs Mm -hmm. in the next scene we have troy and lelena kind of we get to see their relationship a little bit theirs is kind of like obviously they're best friends but they from the get-go they have a very heavy like sexual tension yeah or like is it platonic is it not like have they already are they going to because in the scene in the rooftop in houston he's like there was that one time in 19 and then i was drunk or she was drunk and then he's like i could have taken advantage of you but i didn't yeah he's like it would have been a poetic experience if (laughs) i hadn't been such a gentleman so the thought has been there but i don't think they've acted upon it yeah and elena mentions in this that he has She's like, I figured out what's wrong with you. And he's like, what is that? I'm not a pepper. And then she says that he has philosopher, philosopher groupie syndrome. And she mentions that Troy has a 180 IQ and he always just dates all of these dumb girls Mm -hmm. to which he replies, they're not all dumb. Some of them are just very Very depressed. depressed. Yeah. Which kind of gives you insight into Troy's like person. But also generation. If you were to talk about a generation that was like utterly depressed, it would be generation X. I'll talk about Prozac a little bit later, but it really helped define, you know, one of the things that we're trying to answer is definitions of the 90s. Prozac and depression in the 90s, that that was a, a good definition of that. Everyone's getting high. And As another Troy key line. If I could bottle the sexual tension between Bonnie Frank and Schneider, I could have solved the energy crisis. This scene has so many Troy lines. That's the first one. Um, and then we have the exchange between Vicky and Troy where maybe not the right choice of words, but Vicky says, don't bogart that can man. man. And he's like, are you retarded? And she's like, no, I'm rhyming. Which you couldn't get away with no. that word now. No, definitely no not. And That's why I was like, multiple it's a times. poor choice of words. Yeah. That show, by the way, Bonnie Frank and Schneider was a uh, one day at a time. 
which ran from the late 80s until the early 90s. But I have no memory of that show. Also, smoking weed out of a can, like classic. Especially when you're makeshift, like what? We need something to smoke this out of like. I hope people still do that. I've never done that. I've, I've never done used it a can. It's With pretty, a can? I've used a pen, a can, a Snapple bottle. Apple? An apple? Apple. I think I've used that before. But I think the pen was definitely the most creative at the time. But I mean, I also feel now like there's so many ways to smoke that like now. Because it's, it's legal here now. Yeah. So you can just go and get whatever method you need. Right. Speaking of Troy, you know, with his one-liners, did you ever know a guy like that that knew like all these pop, pop culture lines? No, and you went to Sam, and that's that's that was his extent I'm of pretty the vocabulary. Sure, that every I wanted to say every woman, but I feel like everyone has dated a Troy at some point in Especially their lives, like early twenties. And yeah, I'll, I'll I'll get to that later when we talk about like the love triangle a little bit more and kind of how I felt versus how I feel about it now. And I think that's kind of what it is. Yeah, like I'm sure every, if you talk to any girl and you're like, hey, did you ever date a guy with a shitty band? They're like, yeah. Did you ever date a guy who thought he was like a philosopher? And you're like, yeah. You know, and then like, did you ever date, like instead of quoting Cool Hand Luke, they quoted The Dark Knight, you know? <laughs> so it's like every generation has that guy. From my perspective, I used to work with a guy that was just like filled with every family guy every you know Chappelle show every just insert whatever is popular that year and they would have the lines and like they would just that was their extent of the vocabulary and it was just annoying as shit I know I do that sometimes but I only do that with people that will reciprocate or know what I'm talking about so like if I'm hanging out with you and like Andy I'll be like Simpsons quotes. You guys will get it. Or like once upon a time in Hollywood quotes, like you, I'm not going to say that in front of a stranger unless one of you is there and you guys can get what I'm saying. But you know, it's just like, no, but I think also like Troy does a good balance of like dropping what he needs to. And it's more exact. Uh, the people that I'm referring to more is like, that's all it is. Oh. Like it's just nonstop. Like, like you drop like your pen and they, they have it ready to go. Do you remember when Borat came out and everyone was just like all over the place with Borat? Yeah. Or Napoleon Dynamite. Just shit like that. Yeah. That was another one too, where it was just like, just too much, like calm the fuck down. And yeah. So then we have, I'm bursting with fruit flavor, <laughs> bursting with fruit flavor or, well, this is when we find out that Vicky got the manager job. Yeah. Sammy also has some fun lines here. Like when he's like super high and he's like, Vicky got manager at the gap. And like later when he's talking about pizza and he's like, Lelena, if, if we, we promise, promise to pay you back, back will you spot us some pizza? pizza? It's like, what? <laughs> but th that dialogue is just so like, it flows so well and it's so genuine where you're just like, I've totally been there and I have friends that talk that way. Yeah. And it's just but like, it, and like I said, it goes back to the writing of this film and just like how, not only does it nail the 90s, but I feel like it's the flow of it is it's not too much 90s. Uh, it's a great mixture, kind of like with how Troy mixes it up with his like, you know, quotes. Yeah. And speaking of dominoes, there's the bit where they're trying to get pizza and Lena's like, I don't have any cash. And you're just like cash for pizza. Like, what are you talking about? Yes, kids. And Domino's takes checks. Only, checks. What are you talking about? You only could buy pizza with cash because the Internet was 
barely a thing and you couldn't buy anything with a debit card Pizza or guys only had cash credit cards uh like it was rare that you would be able to use those just for for whatever and now it's like you don't think about it twice but that was a thing yeah she mentions this little tidbit which i didn't understand until i researched it for the podcast she mentioned that the owner of Domino's supports operation rescue you know operation rescue is remind me so operation rescue is a pro-life Christian organization. Oh. And so when they're trying to get Domino's, she's like, the owner of Domino's supports Operation Rescue. And Mickey's like, no one gives a shit about that. We're starving. But yeah, so I, I had to look it up and apparently it was true. There was like a special on like 2020 or something that was about Were how- they ousted him? Either the owner or one of the owners, yeah, supported Operation Rescue. And then later he was like, no, I don't. But that's where but that- really was. That's where that little joke comes from. I think maybe the best line from Troy uh, in this scene is, I'm not under any orders to make the world a better place. How would young people react to that line? Like if I was Generation Z, like hearing one of my friends like say that in 2021, because I feel like that would be like, this dude is garbage. Yeah, I'd be super pissed off. Even if I was Generation Z, if I was younger, yeah, I'd be like, yeah, fuck? because it's one thing to be like anti-establishment. But it's one thing to be like, I'm not even going to try to do yeah, anything. Yeah, I'm not even going to try to make things better. I'm just going to just sit there and like just watch MTV all day. So I thought putting it from the perspective of, you know, the young people today, um, I thought it was telling of the generation. And speaking of generation, it's a good segue into talking a little bit about Generation X. Now, obviously... I am not Generation X. Technically, I'm a millennial. But I had always wondered who decides these names because I had I thought it was just like someone wrote a piece about, you know, uh, baby boomers and that's how it became a thing. But where it really came from are from the two generational theorists, Neil Howell and William Strauss, who wrote a book called Generations um, in 1991. And they labeled... Uh, all the generations in the 20th century. And so that's where baby boomers came from and then generation X. And then it even went, got into millennials because the book was published in 1991. And so that's where the, the names came from. I always thought it was a bit dumb in that. How do you decide the years? Cause I get like a decade, a lot happens in a decade, but like, for example, a like generation X is from, the late or the mid sixties, I think late sixties up until, you know, uh, the early eighties. And that's a long time. Yeah, that is a long a time. A lot of shit happened in between that time. So I never really bought into like you fit in here. And especially because they're like, I was saying when we began the podcast, there are different factors. Like I could have been born that era but I could have lived in a very poor place. You know, I could be not white. And so my upbringing is going to be completely different. Well, even me and you, we're eight years apart. We're both millennials. And a lot of our experiences are completely different. Right. Like, because we moved, like you went to school, elementary school in a different city than I did with different people. And I'm a girl, you're a boy. So we have different experiences, even though we're the same, technically millennial. Generation X is said to be smaller in size than baby boomers. And that's through the advent of the pill being invented. 
and the legalization of abortion, it was a lot more feasible to not have kids during this time. I never really thought the differences between sizes was like that dramatic or anything. But I guess if you do think about it, the timing of it, that birth control was just a lot more accessible uh, post 60s than it was, you know, a whole generation in front of that. Like I was talking about how Prozac defined the 90s. You could say our generation, millennials are more anxious than the previous generation, although it feels like it's mixed. It's both anxiety and depression. Um, but Prozac, uh, really took off. It was invented in 1997. That's when it sort of came out to public, uh, use. And then it took off in the nineties. The biggest characteristic about generation X is that they were the slacker generation. And a lot of, especially coming from baby boomers, like a lot of them looked at like that. They didn't work hard, that they were privileged, that they would be lazy which I feel is like the same adjectives that they described our generation, that millennials are lazy and privileged and don't have work ethic and blah, blah, blah. Um, but also I think generation X was, you know, cynical and anti-establishment, which you see in the film. But what's interesting to me is that I feel like generation X started off as like, we're going to be anti-establishment and like change things. And then things got worse. And they didn't do anything, any of the things that they talked about. Um, and then it's the next generation's job to pick up the pieces and try to clean shit up. But it's interesting seeing these characters develop, you know, where you have Troy, who's kind of like on his own road, is anti-establishment. And then you have, you know, Winona Ryder's character who says she wants to change the world. So she's kind of the complete opposite of Troy. And so I feel like she would be the one that would actually, if I see her now, she would have done something with her life and, and would have changed something. Um, but it's interesting how, like I said, every time there's a generational change, the same shit is said about like the previous generation. I think about, well, when I was younger, I remember Generation X was like the cool thing because in like those Pepsi commercials... The my, they used the My Generation song from The Who and it was all about Generation X and Generation X seems so cool to me when I was younger. Because it's X. Yeah, and because, you know, the way they were dressing and it was all like super 90s and grunge stuff and like you were saying, it was anti-establishment, which I was super down for as a kid and, you know, even now. And yeah, it just seems that somewhere along the line, all these generations just kind of fizzle out and are left doing the same things that they hated before, which isn't to say that's going to happen to millennials or generation Z or whatever. Like we can stop it whenever, but that seems to be the trend and it seems to have happened to generation X. Well, I think it's like burnout. I think it's also like when you're young, when you're where they're supposed to be like 23, you have tons of energy and you're invigorated and think like my generation is going to be better than the previous one. And we're going to fix things and, and do stuff. But when you see what happened uh, with Elena and how she's kind of being forced to like compromise her vision of the documentary, you you think, is it that Generation X just got tired of fighting the battle and then is like, oh, well, I'm 40 now. I don't have the same energy. Like the next generation is going to have to pick it up. When it's mentioned that Reality Bites is you know, the definitive Generation X movie, whatever. 
I think people only say that because it took place in the 90s. And like I mentioned earlier, a lot of the issues that they have in the movie are some issues that we have or even Generation Z has. And I I saw in an article, there was a a really good line I liked that said, what happens when the life you were promised isn't the life you got? And that's like a struggle that we are struggling with right now as millennials. And that's definitely something that I know Generation Z is trying to fix because they don't have the tools. They weren't equipped with the right tools to deal with the life that with what's happening right now. And we don't even have the tools for that as millennials. So it's just kind of a theme that is relatable to people, you know, ages right now, 16 to like 40, I guess, you know, on to lighter things. We were just at Elena's apartment and they're all trying to figure out what they're going to eat. None of them have money. And Elena's like, I know. So she pulls out the gas car that her dad gave her. Keep in mind, remember, he said he was going to pay for the bill for one year. And then Vicky says, we're going to eat gas. So they go to the gas station, to the mini mart at the gas station. And that's how they procure what they're going to eat. That's right. Obviously, we can't play because we'll get sued up the butt. But that's my Sharona by the knack. Remember that one, kids? And I feel like speaking a little bit about the soundtrack, uh, my Sharona was sort of like brought back in a way, just like sort of, you know, in Wayne's world. Was that an 80s song? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So they're in the, in the mini mart and they're all stoned. And, you know, how many of us haven't been in a mini mart when we're all stoned and we're trying to buy all the Pringles and donuts and. All the snacks. Yeah. And this is when Vicky comes up and says, or Sammy comes up and says. Yeah, Vicky, we just thought of something or something like that. He's like, something wonderful. And Vicky says, Evian is naive spelled backwards, which blew my mind at the time as a 15 year old watching this. I always forget about that. Yeah. Every time I see it, that's probably the one thing I should think of, but I I always forget about it. And I've definitely said it a few times at like parties and stuff. People don't get what I'm talking about, but it's a fun thing to say. Who would you be in that group? You're super stoned. Your favorite song comes on. I would probably be, I'd either be Lelena because I wouldn't be the one to like start the dance. Like Vicky tells him to, to to turn it up or I would be Troy. That doesn't do anything. I would definitely be Troy. Yeah. Like I'd be between Elena and Troy, probably somewhere in between. Cause yeah, I definitely wouldn't be like, let me dance in the mini mart, you know? But if I was with friends, even if I was super high, I would still be so ashamed that I would be like, <laughs> I'm not fucking dancing. And he has that great, even though I have that great kind of like little, smile, I can't, I don't but even, then like that has to be an accident. Frown. Like, I don't even know like, how he did It looks that. like a, like a little glitch, a little. Like, yeah. And also in that scene, once Vicky and Elena start, dancing you can see steve zahn is trying really hard not to laugh and then when he does start dancing he does this crazy thing with his head where he goes like this and his hair just kind of does this and then that exterior shot reminds me a lot and i wasn't the only one who thought this because i saw this in one of the articles it reminds me of that painting of the diner at night the phillies diner oh yeah it's from i think it's called nighthawks it's from the outside and you see them like dining that's what it reminds me of because you see them all inside of the mini mart and it's nighttime. But you also see the stars. Right. Which are the only special effects shot in the whole movie. I figured. <laughs> yeah. I figured it was like some <laughs> kind of composite because right. yeah, there's no way that you could do that. What that scene reminds me of is a little movie called The Vanishing. Oh, which I still haven't seen. 
still the most fucked up movie I've ever seen. Spurloose? Yes. Thousand points. Maybe we'll do that one. Oh, we'll do it. But that's like a deep cut. Yeah. I, I think we'll get negative listeners. <laughs> we'll get negative counts on our, on All our right, listeners. All right, we'll do that one later. The drinking game. What exactly is the game that they're... So the game is they're going around the table naming episodes of Good Times. Okay. So, you know, whatever. The, but I know one of them says... But I feel like they lead with an... Like one person says like an object or something or like a part of it. And then the other person needs to carry it over. No, it seems to me like they're doing separate episodes because the girl says JJ works at the chicken shop. And Ethan Hawke says, we already did that one. That's the one where blah, blah, blah. Okay. And like he mentioned something else in an episode. Which leads me to what would you, what would your game be? Like, what would you cover? Oh. Either a show, like what episodes um, of a show I'm or like. show titles though. But you don't have to name show titles. You just have to name something that happens in the okay. episode. I would probably go like the Simpsons. I'd probably do Simpsons episodes too. Because there's a lot of them and like, that's probably the, no, but I mean like Mad Men too. Although I need to rewatch it. Cause yeah. Lost would be a good one too. Lost would be a good one. If you're watching us on YouTube. You can tell that Angie's doing a nice Easter egg with her La Loteria shirt, which if you notice at the table where they're playing the game, they have uh, La Loteria cards and the the panels. Which I didn't notice until you mentioned it. And I've seen really? this movie like I've seen this movie. at and least. There's a big fat close up later. I know. I've seen this movie at least 50 times and I never noticed. Lena and Michael are off to their date. And right as uh, Lelaine is walking through the door, Troy is like, you know, the punishment for premature evacuation. Another great line. Once they're at the restaurant, the waitress is Helen Childress, the writer. Oh, really? Yeah. Nice. Lelaine has a line that Troy, when she's telling Michael that how Troy got fired and for stealing a Snickers and she has a, the, the establishment owes him a Snickers or he thinks that the establishment owes him a Snickers. Um, and that's where you could feel like Troy's character bleeding into like her character and how she's trying to, she doesn't seem like the type that would sort of object to that a little bit, but that's where you can see Troy's sort of philosophical mind sort of connect with her. After our dinner date, we moved to, I think the car is parked outside of Lelena's apartment. They're like kind of sitting on the top of it with the top down and they're listening to Framton comes alive. Originally, it was supposed to be, I saw an article that said it was supposed to be a Beck song, but I'm glad that I researched it further because it wasn't supposed to be Beck. It was supposed to be the Kiss song named Beth. Oh, wow. So someone somewhere just kind of... Fucked up? Yeah. Or just got their songs crossed up? Right. So yeah, it was supposed to be Beth by a Kiss and they, they couldn't get the rights for it. So it became Brampton. Now, that whole scene... Because it starts with like, I think the shot of the headlight and then the camera uh, pans up and then it's just them two. That's a wonder. That's about three and a half minutes. Now, if you don't know what a wonder is, it's essentially a continuous shot. Sort of like uh, 1917. Um, but 1917 obviously blurred the lines of like, it's not one continuous shot. They, they put them together to make it look like one. But that shot is like one continuous take. Um, Spielberg is really famous for the, for the easiest hidden wonders where you look at a scene and you can, it was like, Oh shit, that was like one long take. And this shot is one of those. I think Ben Stiller did an amazing job of setting it up because it, 
I had to go back and watch it twice to realize that it's like one long scene. Lelena talks about her affinity for, you might've seen me kind of taking swigs out of this earlier, but. It's almost empty because I <laughs> bought these like five hours ago. You've been drinking them. Yeah, we've been drinking Big Gulps from 7-Eleven, which mine, mine has White Claw in it because I can't drink this much soda. But yeah, she does mention the Big Gulp and which is really gross to think about when, because they have the smaller one. They have like the single gulp, which is like 32 ounces. But these are 44. Yeah, and she mentions that she likes to get them in the morning, the 44 ounce, and that you have your essential nutrients for the entire day. Also, how much better are the cups in the movie than they are now? Yeah, the ones in the movie are way better because these are like see-through. They and don't even, even barely see the double gulp. Like, yeah. It's like you can't even tell what it is. By then, there weren't any 7-Elevens in the Houston area. They were all Circle Ks. Oh, wow. So that was kind of... Helen Childress was like, yeah, people like to say that that was like something I missed. But I guess she was living in an area near Houston and that they still had 7-Elevens there. So that's okay. kind of why... She was able to get get away with it. Yeah. Stiller, this is where I sort of begin to question the how genuine his character is because he starts talking about how he's not about like material things and then about like, I don't really care about cars, but he drives a convertible and then he's like, or clothes. And then she calls him out on, you know, oh, look at this Italian suit or whatever. And so to me at that point, He's kind of bullshitting in my mind. I think just to probably have sex with her or just to be with her because he's trying to see all the right things, but he's saying them in kind of a weird way. A Ben Stiller way. A Ben Stiller way. (laughs) I don't know. What do you think about that? I think because of, you know, stuff he does later on in the movie, because you could also argue that earlier when he decides not to go forward with like the car crash, like pressing charges and stuff, that he's just trying to sleep with her. And that's why. It's a pretty long con. <laughs> yeah. But you but, know, he's a dude. So But he's also working in the establishment. Yeah, so like exactly. I didn't really think of it at the time. I still really don't when I'm watching it like, oh, he's bullshitting. I think it might just be like he could have been pushed into this job and like didn't really want it. But because it was forced. good money, like, yeah. you know, and he has to just kind of play the part. So Michael gets Lelena with the whole, do you ever, do you ever think about moments that like, we are just happy and like they see eye to eye and then they start making out. How fucked up is that scene? As much as I have issues with both Michael and Troy, it's still fucked up that to see like someone that you're in love with basically like making out with someone else. And then they pump up, you know, uh, Frampton comes alive. I don't really think it's that fucked up. I'm being honest because Lelena's had to live through like Troy dating all these chicks. But you we, know? Don't, we don't know that she's in love with him. But with Troy, I think it's pretty obvious. Well, we don't know that he's in love with her until after this, until after this scene. But I, I think, think the that's this scene really reveals that before he ever even mentions it because of the way that it's set up in the song and like yeah. the look. Where like when you see the scene with Renee Zellweger is just like a montage and like we know he's uninterested. I know, but like when she talks about him with philosopher groupie syndrome, like obviously she knows enough. It's happened enough times to where she's like, this is clearly your type. You kind of see it in the beginning when they're talking about how they like almost hooked up, but they didn't hook up. So I feel like it's not really that messed up of a scene. But also she didn't know Troy was going to come home. 
Yeah, I'm not blaming her at all. Yeah, I just said that it was like a fuck. But up I do scene. think it's funny that the whole time they're making out, they're like fumbling with like because of the how giant big gulps, these fucking like, things just are. Like, dude, just put it down. Like, it's you true. Know? So but I they're think they're in a nice convertible. I think that's a really like little piece of slapstick that I like is because they're like trying to like maneuver the big gulps. Lena gets scolded. Troy's like waiting on the couch under the light and starts seeing. Peter Frampton. And then there's a big back and forth between her and Troy. And she says, why are you acting like a jealous boyfriend? And then he does the, like the worst thing where he's like, I'm just sitting here reading my book. I love it. He's like, I am not acting like anything. I am calmly reading. What a D bag. Like, I, I know. I, I just want to punch him in the face. Okay. So does that completely change your perspective of the scene before where you're like, that's fucked up? No. Be- well, <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't because it's like a cat and mouse game where he's, if he's really in love with her, he's putting up a front because he doesn't want to get her blah, 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 which is still think it's shitty. Yeah. But he's also acting like a 23 year old dude. And then it gets worse. Yeah. And so I think the writer captures that perfectly. And then he does the whole, um, very serious, like where he's like, I'm in love with you. And he's like, is that what you want me to say? And then he laughs in her face. And then he's like, don't flatter yourself. But yeah, that whole scene is is fucked up yeah. and adds to the fucked upness from the from the previous scene because at that point you're unsure of like you were saying whether he's like really in love with her or he's just like messing with her head and and uh yeah. This next sequence is what I like to call parents suck because you have Vicky and Troy talking about how crappy their parents were and Vicky essentially talks about working at the gap and how she's never been a responsible person and that she really blames that on her parents because she thinks she was conceived on an acid trip. And then Troy talks about how his, her, his parents were divorced when he was five years old. And then when his uh, father found out that he had cancer, that he brought him to the beach and talks about how he got a shell and says, son, the answers are all in here and they're empty. And that's when Troy has a brilliant line where he says some other things, but says it's just a random lottery of meaningless tragedy in a series of near escapes, which I sort of completely agree with. I had that written on my binder. <laughs> Are you serious? In high school or and or had it as a quote on my AIM. Nice. Biography and or had it as a quote on my MySpace page. But I or definitely, all or all three. Yeah. That whole part, I remember being 15, be like, oh my God, it's so deep. <laughs> like, you know, so genius. It's so genius. Um, yeah. But so that, that scene where he's at the beach was shot in Long Beach, nice. which I, like, Shout I saw the Long oil beach. rigger behind him and I was like, this has got to be somewhere. And yeah, it was shot in Long Beach. That, that monologue is really good, but it's a little like eye rolly where he's like, he hands me the she, this seashell and I'm like, what? And it's nothing. And I was like, okay. Ethan Hawke's delivery because he sounds like that guy that would say that <laughs> right. like his tone is perfect in the phrasing of yeah. it and just his attitude that like life is, you know, just meaningless. It, he just completely nailed it. Yeah. He does a really good job. And then, you know, he goes through, enjoy the little things like a quarter pound of cheese. cheese. Yeah. Those are good. Those are good. But even that is like so sarcastic. Yeah. He flip flops between being like, cringe like 
making my eyes like me roll my eyes and then me being like, oh, you know, that's nice. Like when he says the moment where your laughter becomes a cackle. Yeah. The sky 10 minutes before it rains. You're just like, oh, that's cute. In the next part of this, you know, sequence of scenes, we have Vicky going to the free clinic in Texas to get tested for for AIDS. You know, you have this moment where Elena kind of asks her why she's getting tested. And she's like, a friend of mine tested positive, which leads me to believe that maybe like one of her partners did. So she's like, just trying to be safe. And this is where the movie kind of gets a little more serious than Mm -hmm. it's been. Because you have that scene where the nurse is calling her name and she kind of like doesn't get up at first. And then she calls her again and then she finally gets up. And so it's just like this very kind of serious scene in a movie that so far hasn't been super, super serious. And we have another scene like this later on in the movie that's really good too. Speaking of that scene, I think we need to remind people how big AIDS and HIV were in the 90s because... Even though I wasn't their age, I was already pretty aware of of AIDS and what it did. And it really reminded me of COVID. Obviously, COVID is a different beast, um, but it still affects a lot of people. And even today, I looked this up, uh, in 2018, 1.2 million people had AIDS and one in seven didn't know they had it. So it's still, there's still no cure. Um, it's still very prevalent, even though we think it's like, you know, under control. I mean, it is under control. There's a lot of treat- treatments for it. Uh, but back in the nineties, it was completely different. By 1995, AIDS was the leading cause of death for Americans aged 25 to 44. That's scary. Yeah. So in, like you were saying, Janine Garofalo's character where she's, you could tell it gets serious and she's really worried about, uh, whether she gone AIDS is because back then there was... If you were poor, yeah, you there was no hope. Yeah, you and know? you can. T- she goes to the free clinic. You know, they don't have like I think Lelena mentions that she doesn't have a dentist earlier on in the movie, which leads me to believe they don't have health insurance. So mm. there's a really cool segue after this scene with Vicky, where it segues into she's been showing this to Grant, and Grant is just obviously you know he's a dick, so he's like. I don't want this depressing shit. Like it all has to be happy and cheery. None of this depressing crap. And Lelena's coworker is like, you know what? Let me talk to Grant. Like just leave, get out of the room for a minute. And she overhears him saying that, you know, he hates it. He hates her. He says, I don't want to look at her pointy face again, <laughs> she's like, which, a, face. which I thought was so genius. The original line was supposed to be, I'm sick of looking at that girl's fat thighs. And so when Winona was cast, they were like, this is not going to make any sense, A, and B, that's like a really harsh line. (laughs) But he's a dick, so like it makes sense. And so Helen had to find something wrong with Winona Ryder for him to point to, you know, to point at. This leads Elena to kind of exact her revenge. And at this point, she's just like, dude, I'm done. Like Grant's a fucking dick. I'm over this. And you don't see exactly what she does at the time, but you kind of get an inkling that she's going to do something. And that's something is that she rewrites Grant's interview cards where they should be questions and makes him sound like a pervert, basically. And it's to me, the perfect, the most perfect way to like get fired from a job or just quit a job is just go after your boss. Fuck it. Yeah. Yeah. How many jobs have you been fired from? Zero. I have zero too. Definitely quit, but I've never been. I've been laid off and I've thought about the moment I won't, I could have had one of those fuck you, I quit moments. Mm-hmm. And it was when I was working at forever 21 
And the manager had me clean the entire store by myself. I didn't do anything. He was just a dick. And that is one of those moments where I can be like, you know what? I'm fucking leaving. But I didn't. So I could have had one of those moments too. I worked in retail and it was a moment where a customer had claimed that I had said something that I didn't. And the thing that was really shitty is that obviously like in retail, it's like, oh, the customer is always right. But that's not true at all. And so uh, they were like, can I speak to manager? And so I went to my manager and I had a good rapport with my coworkers and my managers. And I thought like they would back me up no matter what. And the dude gave in in like five minutes. Basically, they just gave him a return. And I was so fucking pissed <laughs> that I could have pulled one of those and just like gone off and just like just stormed out. But yeah, Troy and Lelena go out for a coffee and cigarettes, which is a big theme in this movie. And Troy's telling Lelena about all the places that he's been fired from. And they go by like the newsstand and all of that. And then there's one line that made my head scratch that Lelena is talking about, or actually Troy is talking about how like one day that she'll be famous and they'll be interviewing her and like, Oh, Troy will, you know, uh, I don't remember Troy's name. Like who was he again? And then I think Troy says like, I'm going to end up working at Whole Foods and like, First off, I did not know that Whole Foods existed back in the 90s, but I kind of have the whole history behind it. Um, it began in Austin, Texas, and then it expanded to Houston and Dallas, um, and then it came to the West Coast. But yeah, it was around that era, around the mid-90s, where they like expanded. That was a thing that I stopped, too, when he's like, I'll be working at the Whole Foods. And at first I was like, this generic market or like they're just calling it not even that it was just like this completely shows you that whoever wrote it and directed it is an la person because the only exposure i had had to whole foods is like la like yeah. it's an la store and so i even wrote in my notes i was like look up if there were whole foods in texas in 1994 and that's when i found out that it started in austin and expanded to houston and then they came out here which was, I had no idea. I thought they were just always a West Coast LA Me either, thing. because it's so, it's always been expensive. And like, unless yeah. you live in big, uh, you know, cities or, you know, high income places, like you don't yeah. ever hear about it. After Troy kind of takes Lainey through these jobs that he's had, which is kind of like a sweet moment. You're like, oh, how cute he's trying to comfort her. They end up kissing for the first time in the film. And Lilena stops him and's like, no, no, this is weird. And he's like, oh, I'm not talking about not being friends. I just want to evolve. And she's like, I can't. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that right now. And she says that it's because of Michael. So after that, we get into a little snippet of like Vicky talking about her parents and how she doesn't want to be like them because they've been married forever. And they go to the bathroom with the door open. But that's not what I was thinking about in the scene. I was thinking about how this was like the quintuple millionth time we've seen Diet Coke in this movie. Yeah, the product placements. And like, have you ever met someone that drank Diet Coke that wasn't completely addicted to Diet Coke? No. I feel like every time I meet someone that likes Diet Coke, they like psychotically like Diet Coke. Like you you either don't like it or you have to have it every Yeah, and hour. they have it for every meal. It's like it's crack or something. Like I don't I don't understand what yeah, it is. I don't know. I don't I've get always it. I mean I was a soda person when I was a lot younger. But even when like the diets came out or whatever, I was 
never. I'm like, dude, they're worse for you. But it's just the amount of like diet Cokes. Yeah. Like I like regular Coke, but I'm not like drinking it all well, the it time. It could be the idea that it is healthy. So I'm going to drink as much of it. It could be that. We get to is Michael full of shit part two. And Michael and Elena are in a hotel. And since Michael is the head of programming or he's like one of the head of programming in, in, in your face TV, uh, the documentary that Elena has been making, he gets the idea, maybe we should sell it to my network and it could be a big hit um, because he claims that he like really believes in it and thinks it's cool. And there's a scene where um, he's really complimentary about her. And to me, it's a little over the top. Again, I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, but I just, I get like cringe of like, dude, just like be yourself. Stop trying to just answer every thing that you think she's going to say. Cause to me, that's what it comes off of is that he's just really into her and he's just trying to like be a yes man and, and say what she thinks that she wants to hear. And I think that will come into play a little bit later when we have this moment with Troy and I'll, I'll touch a little bit. I'll touch on it a little bit. What I think about Troy versus Michael and kind of their differences and why they are the way that they are. This is also a winner. Um, it's not as long as the car winner, but it's also, um, a seamless one because it goes, they go from like a wide shot and then Ben Stiller gets really close to the camera. And, um, yeah, it's, it's another seamless one that I think when you were saying about Ben Stiller being very, um, perfectionist and trying to get it right. Those two scenes I think are two big examples of that. Yeah. And he really wanted to shoot this in one take. That was like his thing that he really wanted. But when it came time to edit, I think after, you know, either screening dailies or seeing the movie in a, a pre-screening and it was too long, he kind of screwed himself because there was nowhere to cut because it was one take. They didn't have coverage. They didn't have coverage. Exactly. And so it was actually a longer scene, but it was, it wasn't cut. The scene that we get in the movie is about 30 seconds in to what they were shooting. So there's, you know, obviously stuff before that. After this, we well, we end the scene with Lelena saying she has a job interview and realizing that her planner is from 1988. So we see that she's six years late to her interview. After this, we get like a montage of all the odd jobs that she's kind of trying to apply for. The first one being a production assistant to make videotapes. For Andy Dick. For Andy Dick. Which interesting enough, and I kind of wish they would have gone with this. Andy Dick wanted to play all three interviewees, oh, which would dang. have been really funny if you think about yeah. it. But I guess they didn't end up going with it. And yeah, Andy Dick is just like Andy Dick in this to me. Yeah, you know? basically. Super creepy. After that, we see her apply to, there's like a radio place and then a newspaper, newspaper place is the last place the interviewer is like why do you want to go into journalism and she's like i think they're the last watchdogs yeah. of yeah in enforce the checks and balances and the interviewer is ben stiller's mom really yeah are you serious that's her yeah oh, i didn't recognize her and yeah that's she ben stiller's mom. for some reason but in this scene we get the really good line where she's like define, define irony, irony. If I was put on the spot, I'd be like, well, I would know, obviously, because I've seen this movie 150 times. So I would know what to answer. But if I didn't, I'd be like, 
that line alone could help in job interviews. I would say what Lelena says, which is like, it's when something is ironic. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, I know when I see it though. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly. what I would have answered. And then in that scene where she gets shut off with the elevators, you can see the fluorescent lights that are being used to light Winona Ryder, like as she's going down, which I hadn't noticed until I watched it today. Right. Well, cause you're trying to balance out like the sun. So I can imagine like for Chivo, it was like, how the fuck am I going to get exactly. the shot? <laughs> Lelena meets Troy at a diner. And a few podcasts ago, I talked about how some of my favorite movies always have diners in them. Yep. This one uh, checks that box. Yeah. SAT word of the day, vivisection. I had to look it up because I had no idea what it meant. Now, Lelena is talking about what a shitty day that she had doing all these interviews. And I think it's before. I think it's before because she says a vivisection, a staggering something, something. And then she's like, I mean, can you define irony? Do you know what vivisection means? Isn't it like. It's it's two things, but I think she's referring it in this way. Like animal testing or something, right? Yeah. But I think the other definition is ruthlessly sharp and detailed criticism or analysis. Ah. I see. Which I feel is the more accurate. But I mean, I don't know. But it reminds me earlier when she's talking about how she got fired. And she's like, it's not like I had a hysterectomy or anything. (laughs) You know? Did you catch the book? Yes. Okay. Because I could not. I tried pausing it and I was like, I couldn't get it. The book is Being and Time by Martin Heidegger. I think that's how you pronounce it. Okay. But basically, it's a very brainy book. More philosopher shit. Yes, exactly. There's this back and forth and it's awkward because she hasn't seen Troy in like days and she's trying to figure out like where he's been sleeping because he's been MIA. And so there's another great Troy line, your bravado is embarrassing because she's just like basically like venting and trying to get advice and he just wants nothing to do with it. Which I'm sure she's done to him before. So he's just being a dick at this point. That's what's irritating is that he chooses his moments when went to be a dick. And when not to be a dick, which is like, just don't be a dick all the time. The diner is Johnny's Broiler in Downey, California, which has an interesting story in that in its heyday, it was like peak diner, the peak, the like diners that I live to see and like eat at and like have dreams of leading up to the early 2000s. It began to struggle and it closed down for a while. And then the city of Downey got together and they were trying to organize like a way to save it and and whatnot. And then mysteriously in 2007, the demolition showed up and started demolishing it. And people were like, what the fuck? They had no permits. Uh, The police had to like get involved and like stop the demolition from happening. And so like most of it was destroyed, but a part of it was kept up. What happened is that they were able to reconstruct it and now it's part of Bob's Big Boys and it's still there in 2009. It opened up as Bob Big Boys Broiler um, and it's a place that I really want to go to once COVID's over with. Right. And it reminds me a lot. Well, when I realized that it was Johnny's Broiler and the way it was spelled, it reminded me of Johnny's Coffee Shop on Wilshire. Yep. On Miracle That's Mile. That's what I thought too. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not even a working restaurant it's just there and it's closed and it was in that movie miracle mile which we should also do for a podcast it was also in gone in 60 seconds yeah and it's that's and even like the font it was the same so i was like yeah the design is like almost identical once lena has come up fruitless with trying to find a new job she ends up going to her parents i'm guessing to ask for money or for help somehow 
And they're kind of just like, well, you know, you're just going to have to like pull up your bootstraps and get out there and suck it up, you know? And then her mom is like, why don't you apply at Burgerama? But basically she's like, you know, I was valedictorian of my class. I have a degree not to be down on people that work at like fast food restaurants or anything like that. But she's basically saying like, I shouldn't have, like I should be able to find a job yeah, in my field because that's what I went to I school degree. for, you know? Yeah. That's the whole point. Exactly. And it's basically just the struggles that people that went to college have now. Yeah. Like and it's even worse now. A degree means nothing now. Whereas, you know, I feel like when we were growing up, it was like, you have your college degree, like you're set, dude. And now it's like, you need a master's, you need a PhD. And even then it's like nothing. It doesn't like I, guarantee anything. I know people with master's degrees that have been working at Starbucks for 10 years, you know, stuff like that. So I think that part kind of resonates with what I was saying earlier, that this isn't really a Generation X movie. It's just kind of people experiencing what it's like to have life not turn out the way it was presented to you. Have a teed wiener dude. Enter David Spade as a manager of the wiener schnitzel. He just plays a perfect drive through fast food manager. And he even ends it with like, this is why I've been here for six months. So it's like, dude, you've barely been here. You've, you're promoted a manager. Which totally happens. Oh, yeah. Supposedly, this was supposed to be a McDonald's. But I guess, you know, it didn't work. And the wiener schnitzel they shot out is a real wiener schnitzel in Almani that they got permission to shoot inside of. The line he says, you got time to lean, you got time to clean is something that I used to say all the time when I worked at like Starbucks. And I think nobody but one person knew what I was talking about. Everyone just thought I was being a jerk. But that's totally where I got that from. Psychic hotlines were all the rage in the 90s. I can totally remember tons of infomercials for uh, psychic hotlines. Do you remember the big ones? I only remember Miss Cleo. Miss Cleo. Yeah. Because we're kids of Mexican immigrants. Uh, that's another thing that I just thought of like in the nineties, I feel like we were still watching a lot of Spanish TV totally because we still weren't in control of like what, <laughs> what we, we saw. Watch. We would see infomercials of Walter Mercado, which gained a lot of popularity with his Netflix special. If you haven't seen it, it's pretty awesome. Um, but I remember seeing a lot of him during commercials. So if you spoke Spanish, he was like the voice of, of psychic hotlines. Lelena, after having such a terrible experience trying to get a job, sees a psychic hotline commercial and ends up calling it and is on the phone for hours. And I feel like nowadays people kind of laugh at that. Like, how would you be on the phone and talking to a stranger? Uh, but to me, it's just like talking to someone online that you like have a connection with. And Yeah, or even that bit where Vicky's like, we have a $400 phone bill mainly to a 1-900 number. That's like, that doesn't really happen anymore. No. You know? And if this were to be now, I think she would just be on a Reddit forum yeah. somewhere, you know? And not in debt. Yeah, on the no sleep forum. Yeah, the only thing that changes is just that one doesn't cost money. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, we also get that bit when Vicky gets really frustrated with Elaine and she's like, dude, you are in the bell jar. Speaking of that, there's tons of like 90s lingo in, in this. Uh, like you just said, man, you're in the bell jar sponged off me when Lelena's telling Vicky about how like when they first moved together, like Vicky didn't have a job. And so she like essentially smooched off of Lelena and then, Hey, my little unemployed waif. The good one. That's all like nineties verbiage. Yeah. That's like just perfect. After this scene, after she gets chewed out by Vicky, 
kind of rightly so, she ends up asking her dad for help, which he probably is like, you know what? No, you just need to get out there and show some ingenuity. And what she, what she decides, which I probably wouldn't have thought of, keep in mind, her dad is paying for the first year of that gas card she has. So she decides to go to the gas station and kind of exchange cash for the use of her credit card. So, so if you're going to get like 50 bucks of gas, yeah. use my card and then give me the 50 bucks in cash since my dad's paying for it anyways. Exactly. So she starts doing that, which is actually really genius. I would have probably never thought of that. And this whole sequence kind of looks like a music video. Dude, 90s commercial yes. music video to yes. the max. Like the lighting of it, the music. And this is the song that I took me fucking days to figure out what it was. Yeah. Chivo and, and Ben Stiller like really nailed it. Yeah. And the song is by World Party who did the first song and it's called Cash Card. Gas Card. Or Gas Card. <laughs> Which at first, because if you have the subtitles on... It doesn't say a gas card in the in the chorus. It says, let's go, mm-hmm. which I always thought is what it said. But when I saw the commentary, Ben Stiller says that it literally says gas card in the chorus <laughs> and that they wrote it for that. Through that side hustle that Lelina does at the gas station, she's able to pay off the psychic phone bill, but they're still struggling to pay rent uh, because rent is due. And you could see them still struggling, even though you have a manager of the gap and all of that. Troy finally comes back and now the tables have turned with, you know, Troy being played by, um, Lelena and even Lelena says, or Troy says, why are you acting like a jealous girlfriend? Because Troy brings in, you know, a random woman that he's going to sleep with. And there's this whole back and forth still where she essentially calls, calls him out of being a slacker and to commit. Essentially that's what it is. It's like more of a commitment because she even tells Troy, you have this band and you play in the same coffee shop. He's like, you should be playing like, you know, three gigs in one night and like really pushing yourself and that he isn't really committing to anything. And then he's just going to end up being a loser and, and all of that. Yeah. And at this point we kind of get some insight and maybe part of Troy's reasoning for being the way that he is, is, you know, we hear again about his dad and how his dad has a uh, prostate, prostate cancer. cancer. And he mentions that because he's like, what do you want? Do you want me to get a job on the line for 40 hours a week until my balls are full of testicles and I have my gold plated watch, which seems like that's kind of the reason why he doesn't want to commit to a job that he doesn't absolutely love is because he's like, my dad did it. And look what happened to him. Like yeah. he's dying. And his one commodity that he has that he values is to be free to, yeah, not and be, to have a band, you know? Yeah, so he's like, do what he wants. Exactly. And, and so that's kind of part of his reasoning is pretty sound is that, you know, he doesn't want to commit because he's afraid that, you know, if he does the same thing that happened to his dad is going to happen to him. So that's another kind of insight that we get into Troy's character to where you're like, yeah, he's a shitty person and he doesn't want to keep a job. And, but then you realize kind of why. And so it it makes a little bit of sense. And it also shows like Lelena's conflict of like being again, part of generation X trying to be like anti-conformist but also making one of her best friends to conform to something like uh, it's almost like Troy is too free and that he needs to like settle down and just like every, what everyone else is supposed to be doing. Yeah. And I think secretly also because she likes Troy, obviously I think because she's experienced being with Michael and how he has a steady job and he has all this stuff. 
And he's like, well, if if Troy was only like this, then I could easily just get with Troy. Because he's and like the best of both worlds. So she's kind of trying to push that onto Troy so that he can, you know, commit to a job. That way, when she does get with Troy, she won't feel bad about it. After they get into this really heated fight, Vicky and Lelena leave and take a walk to the coffee shop, which was Johnny's and Downey that we were talking about. That shot where they're walking by the coffee shop sign, that coffee shop sign is like eight feet off the ground or like seven feet off. Like it's not a sign you can walk by and have that shot still. So they had to build like a wooden platform for Winona and Janine to walk on to get that shot of the coffee shop sign behind Uh them. And that's why in the scene, you can kind of hear like their feet. Oh shit. Cause they're hitting like the wood that they just like makeshift built this platform. That's interesting. Cause I did notice when I was looking at photos of the original that yeah. it was high. Yeah. And I thought like, how are they like, and it's, they're all, the camera's almost level. It's a little bit tilted up. But yeah. Like Cause you could say like, where, it's a forced perspective where it was tilted up, but yeah. it's not that much. So Vicky and Lelena are at the diner. They're kind of blowing some steam off from what just happened with Troy. And, and they're also talking about how I just remembered about how um, Vicky's AIDS diagnosis and she's really nervous because she still doesn't know. And, Lena reassures her that they're going to get through it together. And she apologizes for uh, all the shit she was doing at their apartment. That idea of we're no matter what the results are going to be, that we're just going to have to deal with it. And it's scary situation. Yeah. And this is another really important scene that happens in a diner. Exactly. Like they're having this deep, all these deep conversations you have at diners, you know? So at this point, uh, the phone rings she gets a phone call in the diner, which again would never happen now. She gets a call on the intercom that says, is there a Lelena Pierce here? And she's like, yeah. And it ends up being Michael on the phone from his cell phone, from his cell phone in a phone, phone booth. booth yeah. And he mentions that he took the documentary Lelena was working on to the execs up at in your face. And he's like, don't be mad at me, which I'd be like, I told you not to, but he says that they like psychotically loved it and they want to, buy it right is that what he says mm-hmm. and then she's like oh good because i was about to self root off the freeway or whatever yeah just terrible thing <laughs> to say the crew goes back to the clinic to get vicky's results and happily it's negative and everyone rejoices and they talk about hey let's go get ice cream uh afterwards then we cut to a recreation which is pretty funny but also sad in that sammy is gonna come out to his mom and Vicky's playing the role of of Sammy's mom and so they go through but it's like super cheesy and kind of cute but also sad because he's about to go through with it and obviously it's a tough thing and even tougher thing back in the 90s they do their little bit where they kind of rehearse it and then they cut to him being outside his mother's house and my favorite line is like I just want to be let back in the house and the cuts to his mom sort of uh racing back and forth because she obviously didn't take it very well um, and is still processing it. But I think that Steve Zahn is always a jokester and like very comedic. And to see that little bit of a dramatic side coming out of him, and I thought it was like really well done. On yeah, his I, part. Think, I think that really makes the scene hit a little bit harder is because you have the scene before where it's like funny and he's like, this is what's about to happen, but it's like funny. And then even like when you see he's sitting outside and he's like, I came out to her. She's pretty upset. 
and he like says all that stuff. And then I think just the way he delivers that line where he just wants to be let back in the house is kind of, it makes the scene that more heartbreaking. And that's, I think that's what makes it really good. And Steve Zahn does such a good job with that like little monologue he says at the end. This concludes part one of our discussion on the film Reality Bites. Part two will be coming later this week. We really appreciate and thank you for listening. If you want to get a hold of us and recommend movies for us to discuss, you can reach us at cupmoviepod at gmail.com. Same thing on Instagram and Twitter at cupmoviepod. You can also find us on YouTube by searching cupmoviepod. There you can find a video podcast of this episode. Thanks again for listening and we will catch you guys on the next one. Cut. That's a wrap.